business management. But six years ago, I began doing Caminos or pilgrimages to uh, sites in, uh, in Spain and in uh, Italy. And uh, we thought that uh, going from the Desert Fathers of Scott uh, Dixon several weeks ago and then through Catholic mysticism, uh, why not Catholic uh, pilgrimages? Uh, Stan, come tell us about it. My goal is very simple to not embarrass my mother. <laughs> she, when I walked in, she said, That's what you're wearing? <laughs> I do have on clean underdrawers. <laughs> I don't know if that counts. <laughs> so it's Lent, and I thought I would uh, tie in Lent with pilgrimage. Does that make sense? Now, I grew up in this church, and uh, I'm an Episcopalian now because. You don't have to get so dressed up for church. And <laughs> they have real wine and communion. But um, I didn't really know a whole lot about Lent. I don't remember it being talked about a lot when I was um, going to church here in the Methodist church. But the Episcopalians make a pretty big deal about it. And um, I think one of the things that I think Lent should bring us close to it's this fact. Are you ready for this one? We're all going to die. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the certainties of life. So then the question becomes is, should we spend any time with that? Having any awareness of that, does that benefit us? And I would say absolutely. I would say coming to terms and to peace with your own mortality is, is the best way to live a fruitful, wonderful life. And so the question becomes is, given that truth that we're going to die, how should that impact our way we live? And, and one of the things that I've noticed since I've begun doing pilgrimage is this concept of fear. What I'm saying to you is that most of us, fear is the foundation of our life. It, it permeates every decision we make. It is the predominant emotional state and I think for us the awareness of fear would be kind of like trying to explain the concept of wet to a fish. In other words what I'm saying is I think fear is so much a part of our lives and has been from day one that it's very difficult to even have an awareness about how fear would impact us. And, and one of the lessons I've learned along the Camino is, is that and I'll, and I'll share that with you but I'll tell you this story first. Um, in 2007, I was diagnosed with heart disease, um, a left bundle branch block, which basically the amount of electricity that makes your heart beat, I was getting about half of that. And so I went in in the spring when I was first diagnosed with my cardiologist. I came back around September, and, um, and I was exercising a lot, and I was, you know, trying to do all the right stuff that you're supposed to do. And, um, and I shared with my cardiologist that I was getting ready to go walk the Camino de Santiago in Spain, and I was going to be walking for two weeks, and 
I was going to cover some 200 miles, and he began to ask me a lot of questions about this one. Now, where are you going to be again? And I explained to him that, you know, the Camino, you kind of walk from one little village to the next, and most of the time you're out in the countryside, but, you know, every fourth or fifth day you'll come into a pretty big town, and, and uh, you'll go several hours at a time and not see another person. And, and I explained this whole process to him, and he's asking all these questions, you know, where do you stay, and I and so after I explained all this to my uh, cardiologist, who is about my dad's age, he's in his early 70s, he's got kids my age, in, in kind of a fatherly way, he says, uh, son, I don't think you should go. And I said, why? He said, well, I mean, what happens if something happens? <laughs> you know, what, what happens if you get out there and, uh, and you need some medical care. And I said, well, there won't be any, will there? And he said, no. And uh, he said, you really need to think this through. And um, I said, so what you're saying is I could die, right? He said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. I said, well, I think that's a pretty good place to die. I mean, given the fact that we're going to die, I don't want to die sitting on the sofa with a box of Cheetos in my lap. <laughs> and what was interesting is since I've been over there, all along the Camino, there are markers where people have died walking the Camino. But what's interesting when you study the history, now Christians started walking the Camino in Santiago in the 900s and it was extremely popular in the Middle Ages. And what I want you to understand is this, this Christian practice of pilgrimage, which is, is pretty much gone, but it's actually slowly coming back. What you have to understand is, is that when these people went on pilgrimage, they risked everything. In other words, in the Middle Ages when people literally walked out their front door and took off on pilgrimage and would be gone sometimes a couple of years, they were clearly aware of the simple fact that they may not come home again. So they met with their priest and they had a confession. They talked to their family and tell them, here's what you should do with all my stuff, right? I mean, think about it. And once you walk out the door, there's no way of communicating, right? There's no way of saying, hey, I'm halfway, you know, or I made it and uh, I'll be on the plane this afternoon. I'll be back, you know, because once you got to Santiago, then you had to turn around and come back. But what was interesting to me when I really began to study pilgrimage is is the risk that these people were willing to take. And what the risk was, was death. What, what I'm saying is this concept of being afraid to live is equal to this concept of being afraid to die. So what, what I'm saying is it's not so much that we fear death. I think most of us, we fear life. I'll give you an example of this, and, and, I've, and I've seen this more clearly on the Camino than I have anywhere before. The first time I walked, um, there's only about 1% of pilgrims on the Camino de Santiago are Americans. I think that's going to change now. There's a movie that recently came out called The Way. Has anybody seen that? Uh, Martin Sheen plays it, and uh, his son Emilio Estevez wrote it. They actually walked up. They actually walked the Camino a number of years ago, and Martin Sheen's grandson met a woman walking the Camino from a town called Burgos, which is about uh, 
way. The, the whole Camino is 525 miles. It literally goes all the way across Spain. But actually, when they walked it as a family, Martin Sheen's a pretty devout Catholic. The grandson met a Spanish woman on the Camino and is married to her and, and lives in, in, in Burgos. But anyway, so here's, this, here's what happened. So the first time I walked, I went alone. And now I do a combination of going alone and taking groups. And, um, and in the springtime, in April, we go to Italy. We walk from Rome up to Assisi because uh, St. Francis peregrinated down through there. When he, was, uh, when he was kind of in the middle of his movement, he only lived to be 42. But when things were kind of going pretty big, he got the Pope to let him report to Cardinal Ugolina, who was in a town called Riete, which is about 50 miles north of, of Rome. And, uh, and Cardinal Ugolina became Pope Gregory IX. But anyway, so Francis walked a lot through there. And so we do that pilgrimage in, in April. And then in the fall, I go over to Spain and walk the Camino de Santiago. So the first year that I walked it after the cardiologist tried to talk me out of it, I became aware of a number of things, and one of them was that the number of women y'all's age walking alone. Women in their 60s, 70s, and 80s on pilgrimage carrying everything on a backpack by themselves. No escort, no friends, no husband, nobody. All by themselves. Does that sound crazy? I I became curious about this, and I began to pay attention to it, and I began to talk to these women. And I asked really stupid questions like, are you afraid, and have, do you feel unsafe? And they would look at me like I was a complete and total idiot, and go, no, why do you ask? And I remember one time walking down a really steep hill after I just crossed the highest point, which is a little over 5,000 feet. And there was a woman, and uh, a lot of people take walking sticks, and she had them. She didn't have them adjusted correctly. They were really too short to help her. And so I, I stopped and had a conversation with her and said, um, talked to her about her sticks and said, uh, you know, if you raise them up, they'll be able to support you better. And she said, well, I don't know how to adjust them. And I said, well, i tell you what, uh, I can adjust them for you. And I could tell that made her really nervous. And I said, i tell you what, I'll adjust them for you. And then if you don't like them, I'll put them back where they were. She said, okay. So I adjusted them, and she immediately said, wow, this is much better. And, uh, and I said, where are you from? She says, I'm from Canada. I said, how old are you? She says, I'm 71. This past, uh, uh, this past fall, I walked up from Portugal due north up to Santiago. Then I went out to the coast. And uh, I did a couple of things different. I've... I've walked on the Camino six times now, and, uh, and in Italy three times. And um, one of the things that I've really tried to do, and I think this is a lot from really studying St. Francis, where, you know, when he began his movement, what was interesting to me about Francis is his concept of Christianity wasn't so much of, you know, walking around and saying, hey, I'm a Christian, and I'm going to heaven, and you're not. His, his concept of Christianity really was to imitate Christ. You see what I'm saying? He, he was into the, the practice of Christianity versus the professing of Christianity. Even though he did profess Christianity, I think what's really unique about Francis is, is his desire to imitate Christ. And so 
he really he really kind of took some some of the messages of Christ pretty literally. Um, in Matthew, you know, when Christ is sending out disciples and he's giving them instruction and he's he's telling them what to take, but really what he's saying is don't take anything, right? He says don't take a bag, don't take a money belt, don't take shoes, don't take a stick. And, and Francis took all of this literally, and um, he actually walked the Camino de Santiago. Francis did. He did it barefooted, and um, and you will see people now rarely, but you'll see a few folks on the Camino who do that, who take no money, and 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 and, and take very little. But the practice that I've been doing is basically I take um, I have the clothes that I'm wearing, and I have one change of clothes, and uh, and then I can rinse those out at the end of the day. Um, I used I started off wearing shoes. Now I just wear sandals. Uh, I used to take a stick. I don't take a stick anymore. And uh, and now I've got my pack down to about 28 liters, which is, you know, some of the women here probably have purses about that size. <laughs> but what's interesting is when you talk to people about that, they, especially the people who go on trips with me, that's one of the first problems that they have is 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 that's that's all we're taking or. So there's not a van that's going to be carrying our stuff behind us. <laughs> but what I've, what I've realized is that when you when you allow yourself to kind of position yourself in some of these situations, a concept of really just having just what you need, uh, coupled with walking 15 to 20 miles a day uh, in a place that you've never been before, that you don't know where you're going, that you don't speak the language, I think all of that really puts you in a place where it can really open your heart up spiritually and, you, and it really creates an awareness that I don't think you can create here in your own, in your own you know, neighborhood. Um, that I think is one of the things that a lot of folks really struggle with is the concept of why would you go to Europe for two weeks and not have a fresh outfit for every day? <laughs> This last time I went, I, I, I keep kind of uh, up in the ante on myself, if you will, because what I'm, what I'm conscious of is I don't want to go and have the same experience over and over again. I really want to have a deeper, deeper experience, and I realize that, that there's a number of ways I can do that, and, and, and most of the ways I've found to do that is to challenge myself physically. So uh, walking further, walking 30 and 35 kilometers a day, which is you know a little bit north of 20 miles, um, taking less stuff, but this last time, because I'm an idiot, I I, uh, I decided that I would change how I carried food. That normally, because you would go several hours between towns, and sometimes you'd roll in a little town, it wouldn't be anything to eat, so you get used to carrying food, right? Kind of as a as a backup, right? because you'd be a complete idiot to walk around with no food, not knowing where you're going, right? I mean, I'm sure there's some place in the Boy Scout handbook about being prepared where you just don't put yourself in this situation. But I decided to kind of do just the opposite and uh, roll the dice, if you will. So the deal I made with myself when I, I started off in Portugal is I took some cliff bars. Anybody know what a cliff bar is? They're great. They're little bars. And so I get up in the morning, and I get in the habit of getting up when it's still dark and start walking, because it's really wonderful to see the sun come up. So you take a headlight, you start walking in the dark, and I have a cliff bar. And so the first day out, I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. 
I'm, uh, I'm not going to let myself purchase any food in a grocery store or go into a little restaurant and get any food. Everything I eat, I have to find. And I had kind of played around with this before, but I hadn't really done it hardcore. So the good thing about uh, Spain and, and, and being in rural areas is, is there's apples and uh, everybody's got a vineyard in the yard and about every third or fourth day you'd run across a fig tree. So I, so I started off on this plan and, uh, and the first day it wasn't so hard and because uh, there's actually some, uh, quite a few apple trees. But after about the second day, and I did this, I, I made a commitment, I'm going to do the whole Camino this way, where no food during the day. And then when I got to the town at the end of the day, then I'd go to the grocery store and get some food. And um, that went pretty well. So actually the last day, I had gone out to the coast, and the last day was supposed to be about 30 kilometers. Mm -hmm. And um, because I like to get up early in the morning, I, I was walking out of town at and it was still dark, and I missed a turn. And um, so instead of having a 30K day, end up with about a 36K day. And um, what's interesting about the Camino is people are used to seeing folks, and so they'll wave and acknowledge you. But I, I first realized I was lost when a woman came running out of her house, you know, waving her hands like this and telling me to go back. Uh, and then after about two more people did that, Plus, the dogs are much more aggressive when you get lost because the dogs on the Camino are used to But anyway, so when I realized I was lost, I actually, uh, I was heading in the right direction, but I was just wasn't on the Camino. And, and I got back on the Camino, and then I actually missed another turn and got lost again. But anyway, so I had been out now for, oh, it was probably two or three in the afternoon, and I hadn't had anything to eat yet, and I'd already walked about 20 miles. And I'm thinking that uh, this fasting thing is uh, not so much fun. And then an interesting thing happened. Um, that time of year, they grow corn that they feed the cattle in the wintertime. But it's not the kind of corn that's for human consumption. It's that hard corn. And what they do is they cut the corn and the stalk, and they run it through a chipper. So they just chop up the whole thing into tiny pieces. And then that's what they feed the cattle in the wintertime. And so it just so happened that day they were running, they were chipping corn. And, uh, and then they take it back to the farms and they actually cover it up in, black, in a heavy gauge black plastic and that's what they feed the cows. So um, I was walking along and uh, they were, with tractors, they were running these big containers of this chipped corn back. And, uh, and I'm thinking about how hungry I am. I need to do something about this. And um, I realized that as these tractors were pulling this chipped corn down the road, that some of it would blow out, right? And so there'd be little little piles of this stuff. And um, so I began eating it. Not something you'd normally do, right? Now, I'd had practice because I, I learned that just because an apple's on the ground doesn't mean you can't eat it, and just because half of it's rotted away, you can't eat it. It's really interesting how your concept of what is edible changes <laughs> when you get really hungry. But I do this because I know that people who walk the, the, the Camino for thousands of years, these are the circumstances in which they walk the Camino, right? And, and what I'm getting to is I want to share in that experience. I, I want to have a, 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 a true pilgrimage. I don't want to have an artificial experience.
I just assume stay here if I'm going to do that, right? But I, I really encourage you to think about what, what keeps us from, from essentially living in faith. Because I, I think that's what you have to do if you really turn yourself over to a pilgrimage, is, is it, really, it really challenges you this concept of, of what does it mean to have faith. And I don't think that most of us do. I think we talk about it, but what, what I'm suggesting is is that faith, for me, is an issue of who's in control. Who's in control? Are you in control? Do you put a lot of effort every day to manage your life and be in control? I do, and I think I got pretty good at it, and I bet most of y'all are, are pretty good at it. But what I'm saying, this desire to be in control and be on top of everything and everything planned out, to me, that's not... Living by faith. To, to, to my understanding now of living in faith is is to to choose to take your hand off the wheel. Because then you really get to see what's going on, right? I mean, I think in, if we if we don't make any room for Christ to come in and take control, and we don't ever we don't ever choose that, we don't ever create that opportunity. How do you really know? And what I'm saying is, I think most people that profess Christianity, they don't really know what they're talking about. They haven't really put themselves in a situation to find out. Does that make any sense? I, I think what we live with is the illusion of control. In other words, thinking that you're in control is not the same thing as being in control. And, and one of the things that's gotten clear to me now is, is that I'm not in control. I still wrestle with that pretty regularly. The other thing I'm coming to realize is, is it's a pretty good thing that I'm not in control. That once I've accepted the fact that I'm not in control, then who or what is in control? Right? Because if you're not in control, then who or what is in control? Or what if nothing's in control? I don't believe that. I don't believe I understand it. But I do believe that when we give up the illusion of control and really begin to practice our faith, I think then we're really creating opportunities to, to really know God, to be truly in relationship. Does that make sense? So that's why I go on pilgrimage, and that's why I encourage people. It's not about walking. It's not about, you know, doing stupid stuff to see what you can and can't do. It's about consciously and willingly choose to to see where you are in terms of where your faith is. So if anybody wants to go in April, i got room for a couple, a couple more. <laughs> Mom told me not to advertise. <laughs> but if that's of interest to you, let me know. Um, but I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep talking about it, and I'm going to keep encouraging people to go. I think it's, I think it's a really interesting and unique and crazy way to deal with this issue called faith and belief and practicing Christianity. Yes, sir? I have a question. Where, where uh, along this pilgrimage, 
Are there way stations, monasteries, places you can stay at night, or do yeah. you just lay your head down on the... You can, you, do, you can do all of that, okay? And people do all of that. So this question is, is about where do you stay? So on the Camino de Santiago, there's a main route called the French Way that crosses over the Pyrenees from France. And along the, along, along the, 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 the main route of the Camino, there are, you're, you're essentially walking from one little town to the next, okay? So let's say every five to seven kilometers, you'll come, come, come across a little village where you could get something to eat if you wanted to. You could fill up your water bottle. And most of these places have a hostel called an albergue or a refugio. And these are hostels that are just for the pilgrims. So when you begin the process, you get what's called a pilgrim's passport. Um, and you carry that with you, and that, that shows that you're a pilgrim, and that allows you to stay in these albergues. And most of them, if you stay in the ones that are sponsored either by the church or by the city, uh, you pay five euros, which would be about seven bucks a night to stay. And, um, and then some of them are really pretty unique and pretty cool, and some of them are are not so nice, they're just a bunch of bunk beds pushed together, but it's a place to stay. Um, in Italy, they don't have that. They have, uh, there are a couple places where there's monasteries. Uh, the first time I went and walked in Italy, actually, uh, Harry, my dad's brother, came along with me, and, uh, and we tried to stay in a number of monasteries, and they wouldn't let us in. Um, I can tell you that the hospitality um, from the monasteries and the convents is probably the worst to be honest, surprisingly. It's unfortunate, but that's been my experience. Um, I've been turned away a number of times from, from convents and monasteries. Um, they just, I mean, that's part of kind of their deal is that they have to provide refuge for people, especially pilgrims. That's kind of the deal. Because in Italy, the Catholic Church owns everything. It's absolutely amazing. At the, at the time of Francis in the 1200s, the Bishop of Assisi, his name was, are you ready for this? Guido. <laughs> really is. He was the largest landowner in all of Assisi, and that's part of what uh, Francis and, and later Martin Luther were really challenging the church on, is, is this tremendous wealth that they had, and, and it's still true today. So many of the, of the monasteries and convents that have been closed down are now turned into essentially hotels, you know, houses of hospitality, they call them, that would be run by the church. Uh, and you can stay in those, but they're no cheaper than a normal hotel. So to answer your question, in Spain, when I travel alone, I stay in the albergues. You can't make reservations. It's first come, first serve. So if you go in the summertime when there's a lot of people, uh, it's very likely that when you show up, there's a sign that says completo, which means full, and, and you got to keep going. And again, that's part of what I like about the Camino is, is you take off, and there is no set itinerary. There is no guaranteed place to stay. You can stay in a hotel or you can stay in a private one. But when I take groups, I make reservations and we stay in hotels. But in Italy, they don't have that network at all. Do some of the, do some of the places let you come in that refuse you? You said some of them. 5% of 40 um, or the monastery? Yeah, I just... Um, Well, think about it this way. If, if somebody showed up at your house and said, can I spend the night tonight, what would you say? Yeah. And the chances are most of us would say no, and you'd have a good reason for saying no. But they're no different. So, so, 
came every day on a continual basis, I'd have a different frame of mind about that. Right. Um, my cousin Troy, who's a, an Episcopal priest, he he was over the same time I was, and I really encouraged him to. to he's gone with me with groups before, and he walked alone this time, and he's not at the best of health, and he had some foot problems. And uh, he shared a story with me where when he was in uh, Leon, um, which is about two-thirds of the way, he had stopped because he's having some trouble with his feet. And, and at 9 o'clock at night, they kicked him out. Um, so, you know, the, 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 the folks that I've met over there who've really treated me like family had no affiliation with the church. Um, it's, it's unfortunate, but it's, I mean, I, I guess I understand now why. Um, and I've gone to many church services in both Spain and Italy, and I can tell you right now there's just nobody there. There's about eight or ten elderly women sitting in the front row, and that's pretty much it. I mean, the, in Italy and Spain, people have pretty much abandoned the church. And, and I think I have a sense of why. In other words, if you go over there and you met somebody and you say, you know, are you a Christian or are you Catholic? They would say yes. But they don't practice their religion. And that's one of the things that, that I've seen and one of the things I've really been tuned into is is, is if I'm not going to practice Christianity, then what's the use in pretending? I mean, I think I think St. Francis had it right. It's, it's in the practice of, of Christianity. It's in the imitation of Christ. That's where the good stuff is. Which means abandoning much of what we hold on to, you know, in our in our life here that's really, I think, driven from fear. I mean, if, if I could somehow cast a spell on each and every one of you and make you not be afraid again, that would radically change your lives, wouldn't it? I mean, the whole concept of being anxious and nervous and worried, all that goes away. Yes, sir. Could you elaborate a little bit more on why Spain and Italy has abandoned the practice of Christianity? Could you could you say a few more words on that? Well, I mean, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who've written about it. Um, I, what I'm really just sharing with you is my firsthand experience. When, when I when I when I'm on pilgrimage, I come to church. I, I try to go into the church. Okay. The majority of times, the churches are locked up. And I usually make some smart aleck comment like, they got Jesus locked up, you know. <laughs> let, let Jesus come out, you know. Um, and then some of the churches, some of the big cathedrals in the big towns like Burgos, uh, they want to charge you to come into the church, which I refuse to do. Um, I... I you know, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I think that, you know, look, look at us here in the U.S., you know, in terms of what, what's the religion that we profess, profess and even of people who would describe themselves as Christians, which, which percentage of us practice Christianity and really live it, you know? I can tell you that where I go to church at St. David's, you know, our annual pledge is $3,500 per family per year, right? So the, feeling, the 
feeling in Europe then is that the church has abandoned the people, that they've lost their, lost their way and never regained it. Well, I, I think it becomes an issue of when you, you, what happens when you get become really powerful and you become really wealthy. And how does that separate? And I think that's essentially what's happened to the Catholic Church over there. You know, is that they've kind of lost touch. Not in all situations, but in a lot of situations. You know, the, the young kids, I mean, they're nowhere to be seen. Again, the folks who go to church are, you know, y'all's age and older. There's there's no 30 and 40 year olds sitting in the church. They're just not there. Yes, Observation that I have is, is that uh, the government, the state, has provided a social network for all the people. So all the fear that you would have and normally rest on your serving Christ has been transferred to the government. Now that is an extreme one, but... Uh, well, I, I, I think fear drives people to some of their religious beliefs. I don't think it keeps them there, but I certainly think that you know there, there, there's truth in that. You know, what's interesting right now is in Italy and Spain both they're having a really rough time economically. I mean, things are not good. I mean, unemployment is is really quite bad. Um, but I mean, you know, these, these are things that uh, that we should think about in terms of of, of how, how that plays out here as well, because I don't think we're that far behind them. I wish I didn't believe that, but I really do think that we're, um, in, in, in many ways, you know, following suit. Okay, has everybody got to go? Time up? I'll stay here as long as I want to. If anybody has any questions about, you know, kind of what we do and how we do it, I'll be glad to answer those. Yes, ma'am. Why is Santiago the destination? Santiago in Spanish means St. James. Okay, so so there's a lot of Jameses, right? This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, not James, the brother of Jesus. But after the death of Christ, James went down into the Iberian Peninsula, which is where Spain and Portugal are, and uh, uh, to basically convert the pagans. So so uh, <coughs> Druidism. Um, was big in Galatia in the northwest corner. And the other thing that was going on in that area, there was a peninsula off the northwest corner of Spain called Finisterre, which translates into the end of the world. And so pre-Christians, pagans, had been peregrinating out to Finisterre because they believed that that was the end of the world and they believed it was a holy place. And they would go out to Finisterre and, and, uh, and worship the sun gods because you... You know, the sun would go down, you could see the sun to the west, looking back towards the U.S. And so Christians began coming in there and trying to convert, and, 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 and were quite successful uh, in, uh, in, in converting the pagans. And so the, I think the Christian mythology piece is that after James, he was beheaded by Herod Agrippa in uh, 42 A.D. Supposedly, some people took his, his remains in a boat made out of stone and sailed across and buried him. And then years later, some 800, almost 900 years later, uh, there was a farmer who was digging around and came across a body buried in a field that didn't have a head. And so he said, that's St. James. And he convinced them um, uh, 
to declare that that was the remains of St. James. So in the cathedral in Santiago, these remains are supposedly there. Um, in 961, a, a bishop from a town called La Poule France, which is kind of just south of Bordeaux, he peregrinated that route and really got it going. So all during the Middle Ages, 1,000, 1,100, 1,200, 1,300, up until um, the Knights Templar were, were uh, basically Distinguish uh, that whole Camino route was huge. So there were there were basically in early Christendom there were there were three <coughs> places you could peregrinate to to Israel to the Holy Land, but that became unsafe, right? Because Christians were few and far between there, so it wasn't safe to go to the Holy Land. So then these two pilgrimages in Europe started. So the Camino to Santiago in Spain. And then the other is called the Via Francigena, which is a route from Canterbury in England down through France, thus Via Francigena, France, down to Rome, Italy. And so people would connect on there and go down and peregrinate to Rome. So really right now, you know, you've got uh, Rome as a pretty historic pilgrimage site and Santiago is, is a pretty historic pilgrimage site. But the, the, the pilgrimage in, in, in uh, Italy is... is really non-existent. The Italians are realizing what the Spanish are doing and that the, the Camino has become really popular. So they kind of want their own piece of Disney World, if you will. They want to get in on those tourist dollars. So Italy has really put a lot of work in trying to get their act together to compete with some of that pilgrimage business. But um, if you look at the, at the statistics of the Camino de Santiago, if you go back just say 30 years, you know, in the 70s and 80s, you'll read accounts of people who walked the entire Camino and rarely saw a person. Whereas now you've got somewhere around 300 to 400,000 people a year walking. So it's really, it's really become quite popular. Interestingly, last Friday evening, Rick Steve's show was on the Camino Santiago show and he's reversing it so there's a DVD on that that he's produced that says, yeah, and it really doesn't capture it. No, no, but it just... Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. The same with the movie The Way. I was over there in the winter of 2009 uh, walking alone in December, which was not well advised. But uh, you guys have probably figured out right now I don't have a good sense. Uh, they were shooting the movie The Way, and, uh, and they were like a day or two in front of us. But... Um, I think the movie The Way, if you're really curious about it, would probably be your best chance of really getting a, a sense for it and really seeing the images. Because you start in the mountains and you actually come across in the, the central part called the Mazatas, which are kind of a high desert plains, and then you end up in the mountains. Galatia looks very much like the Appalachian Mountains. So if you walk the whole Camino, I mean, the, 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 the geographical diversity is, is pretty significant. And uh, as well as the cultures that you go through. I mean, the, there's really distinct and separate cultures throughout Spain, and the language and the dialects are quite different as, as well. But it's quite a history lesson. Yeah, one, one more question. I was just curious. How do you maintain uh, semi-control of your group? Do you all have space with each other during the day? Or? Well, we, we um, in, in the morning, if I have a group, if I'm in Spain, the Camino is, is marked, and most people don't have maps. And so we'll talk about where we're going, and depending on the health of people, I'll make recommendations. So there's some people where, let's say it's a 30-kilometer day, and if the person's struggling, I might say, 
you know, why don't you two take a cab halfway in and just walk in the last halfway? Or the first half of the walk is better than the second half of the walk, so we'll do that. Um, in Italy, it's a route that I've put together, so there really is no designated route. And I've gone three times and I've changed the route. I, I like to uh, kind of veer off the route and get lost and see if I can find my way back again. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people, they don't like that. <laughs> they, don't, they don't think that's fun. But um, I think, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, and then realize, well, that's not so bad. But, um, but yeah, we. But I, what I want people to do is I want them to spend a good bit of time alone. So I suggest to people in the morning, at least for the first couple hours, to walk alone in silence. I like to just talk out loud. That's what I do. People say, "What do you do?" I'm just having an ongoing dialogue with God or whoever wants to listen. And sometimes it's not. I don't think a very interesting one. And other times it's probably um, quite interesting and comedic. But I. That's essentially what I do. I think out loud. I have conversations. I can't do that with other folks, or if they're around me, they're going to think that I need to up my medication or something. <laughs>